It is a joy to be gathered together on this, the Lord's Day, this Resurrection Day. If you are just joining us this morning, you're kind of stepping right into the middle of a liturgy that we began really last Sunday on Palm Sunday and continuing through Thursday, Maundy Thursday, when we gathered here and walked the road with Jesus from the upper room where he served his disciples at the Last Supper to the garden where in distress he prayed to the Father knowing what would soon take place. And then that Thursday night we scattered just as his disciples did that night when he was arrested in doubt and denial. But today we are gathered together by virtue of the death and resurrection of our Lord and we rejoice that he is risen. And we continue in our reading of the early chapters of Revelation which give us a picture of the risen Christ in the midst of his church. Now, I recognize this morning that there are some four- and five-year-olds who are in here with us who normally are out of here during the sermon, doing their worship training thing, but you guys are here this morning, and I want to welcome you and say we're glad that you're joining us, and I want to give you an assignment. When I read this passage... Jesus is going to be described, but this is the risen Jesus, and there's all kinds of things that are exciting, and there's all kinds of imagery, and I want you to think about this. What does this description remind you of? For example, some kind of hero, some kind of king in a story, a book that you've read and loved. What does this remind you of? So we'll read together on page 9 of your bulletin, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are... The seven churches. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. 
Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life, grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may by your life-giving Spirit be delivered from sin and raised from death through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And would you be seated? There is an old adage in pastoral ministry that goes like this. You can't lead someone where you yourself have not been. And the idea, of course, is that it's the job of a pastor to lead people into a deeper dependence on Christ under any circumstance. In suffering, in prosperity, and in the face of death, and in the major milestones of life. But if the pastor is not dependent on Christ for all those things, how could he hope to lead his people there? Now, there's another saying in pastoral ministry that goes like this. It's the job of a pastor to prepare his people for their death. Isn't that curious? That it's the job of the pastor to lead people into the deeper experiences of grace that he himself presumably has already experienced, and that ultimately one of those places where that grace is experienced is in death. So it's the pastor's job to take people there. But how does he know? How does he know that there is grace to be found on the other side? How does he know that death is more than just the eerie silence of the grave? And that therefore, what he is preparing people for is not just their passing into nothingness. He hasn't literally been there, has he? He can't rightly say in the face of death, come along with me, I've been there. Likewise, how can a pastor or how can any Christian really be equipped to empathize with every kind of suffering experienced in the human condition? I think about what you might say to the parents of the victims in the Nashville shooting at Covenant School, even to our friends, the Scruggs. Could you say, I've been there and I've seen what happens on the other side? No, of course not. Now, that doesn't mean we can't provide comfort or empathy in the face of suffering and evil. And it doesn't mean that it is not the pastor's job to lead people to the grave, preparing them to see the Lord of creation face to face. But as one theologian has said, it's actually most fundamentally the pastor's job to orient people to the most basic truth of existence, that God is God and humans are humans made by God for his purposes and wholly dependent on him for life and breath and everything. But now here's the remarkable thing. This God who we introduce people to is a God who himself became man and is the only one in history who can say in the face of death, I've been there. I have experienced What it is to have a body rent apart from soul and to lay silently in the grave and to stare death and despair in the face and to walk over its threshold. I know what that feels like. 
And how can the Lord of history say that? Think about this. Why can he say that? It's precisely because he died and he is now alive. Because he went to the grave and stepped out of the grave. Know anyone else like that? By the way, there are people who have tried to claim it, right? All these books about I've been to heaven and I've seen it and all that. No, there are many of us who have stared death in the face and can perhaps steward that gift for the sake of others. And there are many of us who have endured that crossing over of our loved ones and therefore can perhaps steward that weight and comfort others in unique ways. But even that stewardship is only because of our proximity to and our hope in the one who himself has crossed over and come back. Jesus says it like this, Behold, I died, and I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys to death and Hades. And now here's the remarkable thing. This risen one, this one who has died and is alive forevermore, he is not a God far off. He's actually a God in our midst. He is a God who, as we saw last week, comes to his people who moves toward us in love and who stoops low to heal our disease. And that is so clearly depicted here in this passage as Christ stands in the midst of his seven churches saying to them that he has the keys to death and decay. And thus he has the power to heal his church of its disease and distress We know he is in our midst because in his word, the risen Christ speaks to us in our distress. The Apostle John finds himself here certainly in distress. And make no mistake about it, he calls himself a partner of Christians in the tribulation. That is, the the general distress of persecution for the sake of Christ, this side of glory. And he tells us that he was exiled on an island called Patmos, on account of the word of God. Meaning, this is not a quiet retirement or a little vacation by the sea. A week or so ago, we were at the the Ricketts' home, and they had pictures from a trip they'd taken to an island in the Aegean Sea not far from Patmos. And I was thinking about this passage, and I looked at those photos and thought, man, that's, that's not a bad place to be exiled, right? But John's imprisonment was no holiday. He's imprisoned, suffering persecution because of his preaching of the word, separated from those he pastored, longing to be with them. We know that John lived a long life, the longest, as tradition holds, of the apostles, and that he had a long and fruitful ministry, which included oversight over some of the very churches in Asia Minor that he's writing to, And we know that throughout the first century, as the church grew and the gospel was spreading and Christians, especially Christian leaders, endured persecution, right? That makes sense because you have a new religion spreading throughout the Roman Empire that calls people to swear allegiance to this king called Jesus, who is also Lord and God. Here's the problem, though. Roman emperors like to reserve those titles for themselves, So you might understand how Christian leaders and preachers would find themselves in distress at this time. And how churches in this culture, not 
unlike the church around the world today, may feel the distress and tribulation of persecution at the hands of the kings and rulers of this world. And it is into this circumstance that the risen Christ appears to John and speaks to him and also to his church. In fact, he speaks to him and he tells him to commit what he hears to writing because he is a king who reveals himself to his church in history through his word, his intelligible, inerrant, authoritative and written word preserved for us throughout history by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is how he speaks to his church. This is, in fact, how he gives testimony to all he has suffered for and with us. This is how he says to us, I've been there. And how the Christian can say, I know someone who has been there. Now, I realize on this Easter morning, when we are gathered together to celebrate the greatest miracle in history and to rejoice in it, that this first sermon point seems a bit mundane, maybe a bit ordinary. Really, the, the risen Christ speaks to us, but the way he does it is in a book. Just, that's how he does it. But realize, church, just what this book is. Notice how John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. There's been a lot of discussion. What does that phrase mean? Is John talking about some higher state of spiritual existence where he transcended his body, some spiritual state that we should try to attain in order to hear from God? Actually, that's not primarily what John's talking about here. He's using the language of prophetic authority, the same language used in the Old Testament prophets to describe a direct revelation from God to be written down and delivered to his church. In essence, what John is telling us is that what's written here has prophetic authority. It is God speaking to his people through the mouth of his prophets. And in that sense, this book is far from ordinary. These are the very words of God, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, you hold in your hand or even in an app on your phone the very words of God to you. And that word is primarily not a rule book telling you how to live a good enough life to attain grace on the other side. And it's not primarily a mythical account that communicates transcendent moral lessons for humanity. It is, in fact, the self-revelation of the God of creation who became man, suffered death, and rose from the grave. And he is a God, a risen king, who also rules in your midst. So when John hears this voice, he, he then he turns to see who's speaking to him, and what he sees is full of biblical imagery, one like a son of man. That's the self-designation that Jesus uses in the Gospels. It has its roots in the hope of the Old Testament of a coming king in the line of David who would rule forevermore. And this son of man is enrobed in glory. He's wearing a long robe, the kind worn by the high priest in the Old Testament, and a golden sash like the priests and kings would wear. And his Description is full of kingly imagery. He has hair like wool and eyes like fire, the kinds of 
descriptors used in the Old Testament of this coming and conquering king. He has a sword coming from his mouth. Now, kids, you have to, you have to admit, that's pretty cool, right? Um, this signifies the judgment that he brings, and he is exalted in glory. This is clearly a picture of the supreme king of all who rules over all peoples with equity and justice to conquer the enemies of God and set his people free. It's the kind of glorified vision of God that you get in the Old Testament. Remember when Isaiah sees God's throne and he falls down in fear? It's a glorious picture. But here's what's remarkable about this one. Look where this king is standing. He's standing in the midst of golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. Now, we may be left to wonder... What does that signify? But Jesus tells us in verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's what you have. The risen Christ, the conquering king, sword coming out of his mouth, hair like wool, eyes like flame of fire, standing in the midst of his church. He is not a God far off. He is a God in our midst. Now, what does it mean to have a king standing in the midst of his people? You might recall the Old Testament story of David, that great Old Testament king of Israel. You might recall in his story that there was a time when even he who had everything was given over to the temptation of covetousness, leading to adultery and murder. And it started because he stayed behind when kings usually go out to battle. And he, he looks out from his rooftop and he sees this beautiful woman and he coveted her. And since her husband was away, he took her as his own. And even eventually gave orders to those on the front lines to withdraw from the woman's husband so that he would be killed in battle. Now think about this. That story begins because... The king was not in the midst of his people, not fighting for them, not leading them in their pursuit of the enemy, but instead selfishly taking to himself that which did not belong to him. But think about that story against the backdrop of another king who actually did leave his throne room, the place where he had everything, to come and be in the midst of his people and who not only stands in their midst fighting their battles, but who on the front lines puts himself forward in their place, who dies to rescue them. Now, David, believe it or not, was ultimately a good king in the Bible's estimation, but even he was not like this king. In fact, we just confessed from Psalm 51 our need of this greater king, right along with David, because this King Jesus is also the priest who stands in the midst of his people and offers himself the sacrifice for our sins. And because he stands in our midst and offers himself for our sins, he is a king who heals our disease. John responds to the vision of the king like most biblical prophets do. He falls down in fear. But then look what happens Verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Not only have I died and risen, but I now hold the keys to death and Hades. What does that mean? 
Greg Beale, a New Testament scholar, says it like this. Whereas Christ himself was once held by death's grip, not only has he been set free from it, but he also has the power to determine who else gets liberated. He holds the keys. He has all authority over death as one who has passed through it and risen in victory. Think about what it means to know the one who has the authority over death by virtue of his resurrection, who holds the keys to defeat our great enemy. You know, we symbolically give people keys to the city when they do major things for the community, right? Back in 2018, one of my heroes, Dirk Nowitzki, was presented with a key to the city of Dallas. Now, you know that key doesn't open some gate, right? It, it's, it, it's symbolic. It says, hey, you've done so much for us that you have all access. Dirk never has to buy a beer in Dallas if he doesn't want to, right? He's a local legend. He's a hero. He's someone who, let's face it, we all want a piece of. Like, we all want to talk about the time he high-fived us heading down to the tunnel. By the way, he's, you know, I, he's done that to me. <laughs> Or when he took a picture with us after that event, he's a hero around here, but he's not really ours, is he? None of us really know him. If you do, I want to talk to you after the service. <laughs> but he's not a hero, he's just really a celebrity. And his key to the city is merely symbolic, but church we know the one who actually holds the key to death and Hades, who has the power to liberate us from death and disease. And he is not a king who is far removed from us. He is a king in our midst. He is our king. Now, we're beginning a sermon series about church health. And when we come back to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at what the risen Christ says to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and we'll think about how we might appropriate his teaching in our time and place as we assess even our health as a church body. But here at the outset, on Easter morning, we know this. The one, we know the one who holds the keys to death and decay, and he is in our midst. Now, it's interesting, in the medical field, the diagnostic usually comes before the cure, doesn't it? Like, let's figure out what this disease is, and then we can understand how to treat it. But here, the cure is held out first. Because he holds the keys to death and decay, what else could he not cure? And because he is a God in our midst, not far off, who has crossed the threshold of death and who is alive forevermore and therefore who can say to us, I know where you're going and I'm with you and I myself am the cure. The risen king is himself our great physician, so may we find in him life and health and peace in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Oh, Father, you sent your Son, eternal Son of glory, to become man, take on our very nature, die in our place for our sins, 
endure the silence of the grave, be abandoned by his closest friends. And yet you rose him from the grave. Conquered our enemy, death defeated, sins paid for. Risen to lead us in this new way of life that he calls us gloriously into. And so as we walk this road with him in this life, may we walk in the power of his resurrection. May we know Christ in his sufferings. May we walk nearly to him, knowing that he is a king in our midst who heals our diseases and speaks to us in our distress. And may we say, with all the saints in every age and every place, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.